I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you, and Lord, we just want to say thank you for all that you are and all that you do. And Lord, what a privilege it is to walk with you, to be a part of you. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Father, I don't even know how we can do that, but you have commanded it. And so, Lord, you will enable it if we ask, and we come before you in the name of your Son asking for help. Lord, we also ask this evening, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears, our hearts to this table of the Lord, that we would understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think I used this passage four or five months ago, and I'm sure you all remember everything I said, so I can just go on to part two. Okay, probably not. Um, we talked about that we're, it's the first Sunday of the month, we're having the Lord's table. And this last month, I have listened to several messages on drunkenness. And uh, it has really brought, uh, and it, they're biblical messages, they come from God's Word, they come from uh, parts of God's Word, like here, which says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And it has challenged me, uh, in a way, just to go back to here and to understand what this is. And I think part of the interest, you could go back to uh, Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11 when we take the Lord's table. You don't have to actually look there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, he talks about having the cup of blessing, which is the cup of wine, or the cup of Satan, which is drunkenness. And of course, if you go to chapter 11, Paul was correcting some of the problems that were happening, this is again in Corinth, at the Lord's table, and one of the problems was drunkenness. People would get drunk at the Lord's table. And it kind of intrigued me. And I don't think we understand quite how in-depth drunkenness was in their society. So I want to go back, and I mean, we're, we're living in a pretty Corinthian society. <laughs> you know, we, we have all the sin of Corinth here written large in our society as well. But I want to go back and I want to talk about Corinth. I want to remind you of what they were going through. And then I want to come to this section that we looked at in Ephesians and what Paul is commanding, so that we, when we come to the Lord's table, we can understand it just a little bit better. So, first of all, Corinth is at the bottom of Greece, and Greece is like a triangle. 
And on the one side, you had, you had a sea on either side. The one side's the Adriatic Sea, and I can't remember what the other side is. <clears throat> and there's all sorts of little islands up here. There's a couple down in the Mediterranean, but there's many out here, little tiny islands. And the shipping lines would come across, and they would hit all these islands, and they'd stay close to ports, and it would keep them out of the bad weather, especially during the winter months. Remember Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27, I think it is, uh, where they have this, this great nor'easter wind and it just it blows them for 13 days. They can't see the sun and they're, they're pushed in front of this wind and finally destroys the vessel. And this would happen every year. People would be lost. So they would stay up next to the coastline and then they'd come down. And if you came down and you tried to go around Greece, it was a two-week trip, sometimes longer than that. And if you came down and you went through this little isthmus, there was a bay on either side and a small area of land, you could turn the ship over to a, a, a group of movers who would empty the ship out, put all the cargo into uh, wagons, and then roll the ship on its side and roll it over rollers for about 120 miles, I think it was. And four days later, your ship would be stood upright back in the bay on the other side. So you would save a week or two of travel and you would also save this time going around Greece where it was very dangerous as you got out towards the middle of the, the Mediterranean. And this is where Corinth was. It was right at this isthmus. And of course, you can just imagine what this was is sailing crews would come in, you know, from months at sea and they'd have leave. They'd have vacation. And even up to the captain, he would sign the ship over to the moving company and you would walk off. You would walk off. And they would take all your provisions out. They'd make sure you had fresh water, fresh food. Everything would be restocked and gone through on the way. I mean, it was a, you know, lock, stock and barrel kind of deal. You sign the form and it was their ship. And they stood guarantee for it until it was standing up upright in the next isthmus, in the next bay. And so Corinth you know, evolved around this, having this huge commercial business. And what we don't understand was what part drunkenness really played in their society. You know, I have read this in 1 Corinthians so often where it talks about uh, this drinking and do you not have, in verse 22, 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul is asking, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Because they came in and one was hungry, another feasted, and another was drunken. And yet in Corinth, drinking was so prevalent uh, and the wild parties that followed that it actually became a saying that, you know, we're going to go act the Corinthian. We're going to have a Corinthian party. And that meant that there were absolutely no bounds. We were going to get totally smashed and hammered and whatever the terms are you use until all restraints are removed. But there was another part to this that we don't often think of. And that was in the ancient world intoxication of whatever form from drugs, which was called sorceries, or from 
alcoholic beverages, which was drunkenness, any of that was actually considered a worship of God. It was felt that you were breaking down the barrier between you and God and the gods could inhabit you during this time. And they would enjoy their time in a body and they would also uh, leave you maybe with wisdom or gifts or blessings for allowing them this privilege. And you know, I, I thought about this and I, I don't know why, but it really stuck in my heart. And I think part of it is, is did you know that in the 60s, when uh, 50s and 60s, when colleges were experimenting with LSD and hallucinogens, they were actually looking to connect with higher states of consciousness. And when we were in Kenya, occasionally you're, you're set up as a guinea pig, as a target. We would be invited to the University of Pittsburgh. They have a semester at sea and they would do a trip in Kenya and they'd take a trip out to the Mara and they'd have this one meal out there and they'd invite a missionary, yours truly, to be the guinea pig. And they would invite me and they'd say, this is a missionary who's working with the locals in the area and he believes the Bible. And that was the last time we ever talked about missions. The rest of the time it was, do you believe the Bible? But one night, and I mean, half the kids were drunk and half of them didn't want to listen. And there was a couple of times we were able to have some profitable discussion. But there was one time we had a young man who was very antagonistic. And afterwards, we were walking out and I saw him and he was, he was as the saying goes, well lit. And I went up to him and I, I said, you know, I said, I really don't understand something you said. And I kind of mentioned it. And he, he looked at me and he says, he said, I have had an experience. Now, he didn't tell me what the experience was. But there is a reality that you will never know out there. Okay, okay. But this is exactly what they saw as true religion. Touching the gods through drunkenness. And I think what, you know, this, this helped me to understand why somebody would actually get drunk in church. Do you, you, you come into a place like this and, uh, you know, for all of your life, you have been experiencing God along with drunkenness, who you felt was God. And now as you come to Christianity and Jesus Christ, it's hard to throw off the old patterns of worship. You, you look back and you go, well, this is what I did all my life. I just, it feels right. This is religion, isn't it? And Paul would have to correct them. And, you know, do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? You know, one is hungry, another is drunk. You know, I mean, it, when we read it, it makes no sense at all, does it? I mean, we just think, how can someone be drunk at the Lord's table? I mean, that is the epitome of low. But for them, it was a facet of worshiping God. Now, it was wrong. I'm not trying to say it was right. I'm not trying to give them any justification at all. It was wrong. But how many times do we take a tradition of how we worship and continue on even though it is wrong. You know, I 
Angie, can I use you for an example? Angie came from the Abundant Life Church. And uh, they, they have... Uh, uh, I don't even know what to say. I don't want to say vibrant praise and worship music, but something along those lines. They have, they're, they're very much into it without a lot of discretion on the bands that they use, I, I would judge, and the hymns and the songs that they sing. Um, there are many of the praise and worship groups like uh, Hillsong and what was the other one? Red, Redding, California. There's a group out of there. Um, Jesus Culture. Yes, that was it. Uh, that have actually been identified as cults. They've been identified as cults because their, their songs do not have, usually they, they're, they're very vague, but sometimes what they say is plain wrong to the point of it's a cult. If you believe this, what they're singing, and it's not all of their songs, but there's a fair amount of them, that you will be, uh, it will impact your salvation. You can't be saved if you believe these things. Now, coming out of that environment, our singing of the hymns was just thrilling to her, I bet. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Because you, you're, you're in a group that worships together with a large beat and everybody's together and everybody's lifting their hands. And I know coming out of that kind of environment, and that's only one example, okay? Angie, thank you so much for letting me use you. That's only one example. Coming out of that, you can come to a place where you sing hymns and what do you feel? People say, well, you know, you're not really worshiping God. Now, we, we've heard this. This, is, this has been said. And it's the same thing that we're having here. There are those that have, they have made the form of what they did to worship the way of worship regardless of what God they're worshiping. And when God talks to us, he says, those that worship me must worship me in spirit, from the heart, and in truth according to how I've said. And he's, you know, he, he's given us quite a bit of information, even in the Ten Commandments. First of all, thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's to be nothing else on the plane of God. In other words, when you look at God, there's nothing else seen. In front of me, there is nothing. I alone am God. He alone is held up for worship. And then we're not to make a graven image. We're not to use images. Why? God tells us he's a spirit. He's present everywhere. So to use an image, even with the best of intentions, regulates God to that image. We start thinking he's more present here, in this place, in this image, where this picture is, where that is. And it starts to take away from the glory of who God is. And where it becomes difficult is because we have been used to these traditions, we start to think that's worship. That's right. That's what I need. That's what feels good to me. And we have to re-educate ourselves, just like the Corinthians did. Now, 
You know, obviously, we talk about drunkenness, and this is one that is very easy for us to look at and go, you know, these guys, they just knew nothing, <laughs> right? I mean, we don't struggle with drunkenness at the Lord's table. That's not one we struggle with. But when we go to Ephesians and the portion we read from Ephesians 5, it talks about why drunkenness is wrong. And again, this is not, there's a whole separate section on can you drink and what do you drink and how did they drink back then? And they did have alcohol. It purified their water. Uh, according to John MacArthur, it was 2% when it was in the concentrated bottle form before you added it to your water. In other words, it's like taking a tablespoon of vinegar and putting it in your jug of water. You're going to taste it, but you're not going to get drunk off of it. Not unless you drink an awful lot. So there was a light drinking. There was also a heavy drinking, and God did not forbid it. Uh, there were classes of people that it was forbidden to. It was forbidden to the priests. It was forbidden to those who dedicated themselves wholly to the Lord, the Nazarites. But he has this to say about drunkenness, which is forbidden. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And this is the part that's always uh, grabbed me. And there's only that one line about drunkenness in there. The rest of this is all positive. And it holds these apart as opposites. They're contradictory to each other. When someone is intoxicated and is brought under the power of alcohol or drug addiction, what happens to them? What happens to their life? It stops. It stops. All of their time, all of their energy gets gets slowly funneled into this all-consuming passion, and it, it doesn't even appear as a passion. You know, they, they would say, well, I could stop if I really wanted to. I just don't want to. But it becomes an all-consuming passion, and it takes them in. And just when you think about a storm that comes, and it, you know, the, the storm is gathering, it's gathering, and then it's dissipating. And it's just spreading out and it, until it, there's nothing, no impact left. And that is what happens in the life of someone who is caught in this grip of an addiction. It dissipates their life. I've got a friend I work with who just went through a divorce a couple of years ago, and there's actually two or three of them, and they were talking. And one of the things that they were talking about is how, uh, okay, they're ladies, I guess I have to somehow give you this because it was the husbands that were caught up in alcohol to the point that they ignored their kids, they ignored their families, they ignored, they ignored, they, there's a whole list. And you just saw this dissipation as they ceased to care about what was important. And on the other side of that is what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And it's not some mystic mumbo jumbo when we look at this. It's this from verse 15. First of all, that we walk circumspectly. We walk with wisdom. Well, with what God has said. Not as fools who don't fear the Lord. Remember Proverbs 1.7? The fool is... Uh, it's not Proverbs 1.7. The beginning of wisdom. 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then there's, a, there's a two verses in uh, Psalms that say the same thing. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. To have wisdom is to fear God and to learn his commandments and to keep them. That's the beginning of it. Without that fear of the Lord, we don't have a basis, a foundation to build on. And the fool, the beginning of a fool is to say, there isn't a God, I can live any way I want, there are no consequences, there is no eternal judgment. I'm just here. And the result is the spiritual laws God has put into place come into effect and you destroy your life. And it's hard. It says, see then, you walk wisely, not as fools, but as wise. And then it says this, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This is probably why I wanted to read this tonight. You look around at what is going on. And this is the command of the Lord, that we redeem the time because the days are evil. See, all too often we look at the days that are evil and we go, well, I just got to pull back. I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with it. God's not saying that. He's saying, use our time wisely for Him. We need it. We need to be involved. Then He continues on, therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And He's going to tell us what that will is. Not to be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be, to be filled with the Spirit. And these are, whenever you have a but in Scripture, it's a complete turnaround. With wine, you're controlled, and the result of the control is an absolute broadening until everything dissipates and there's nothing left, no impact left. And to be filled with the Spirit is to take the Spirit in the same way the wine was taken in to be bringing it in at all times, to be reading your Bible, to be singing to other, one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and to have that being built up, but instead of dissipating, you become concentrated. You become impactful. You become a life that is disciplined. In fact, if you think of dissipation in a human sense, if I say somebody is a dissipated youth, you understand he has no discipline. And the opposite of that is when the Holy Spirit comes in and controls us, we become very disciplined, very caring about what God has said. And then it continues on, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And here again, this verse doesn't leave us, uh, it gives us a lot more doctrine than we think. Our music is not to be sung just because it sounds good. There was a, a song one person asked to sing in our church years ago now, and uh, I can't remember who sang it, Bethel maybe or somebody, but the words were given to me, and I looked at them, and I read the words, and then I reread the words, and then I reread the words. I think I was on my fourth time through it, and I still could not understand what the meaning of the song was. Now, as a Christian, I could put some assumptions into the word and say, I, well, I, I think he's talking about this. I think he's talking about that. But is that teaching? No. That's got nothing to do with teaching. This one says, speaking to one another. You know, you, you are to use the songs to build each other up and encourage ourselves in who is God? 
What is God? To, to go out charged up. You know, I, I think about it is well with my soul. An amazing grace. Two of the old hymns. But you know, why does, why does it is well with my soul resonate with us? Because most of us have had problems in our life when loved ones have died. And we know the story of the song of a man who lost his kids and his wife and maybe one remain. I can't remember how many kids he lost at sea. And as he's going to meet his wife in England, going over, and he passes a spot where the ship went down, he pens these words. When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my state, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then the refrain, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul. And you, we sing it and you get goosebumps because you know here was a man that went through as bad as it can get, losing his kids in a storm. His church actually rejected him also at the time. They said God was judging him. He lost his business interests. It was in the great fire of Chicago. Lost all his, he was a real estate investor, lost most of his, his money. And yet he would sit here alone and despised, rejected by the world, and he would pen some of the most poetic words that in knowing God, we have a comfort that even in this kind of trouble, we can say, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And John Newton, you know, a, a man who was so debauched that at one point his, the crew left him in Africa to be sold as a slave, and he served as a slave for three and a half years. And then he was rescued and did not repent of his behavior and continued actually in the slave trade, abusing people, worked himself all the way up to captain. And then one day God got a hold of his heart and changed him 100%. And he would write the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, he didn't see himself as somebody high and mighty. You know, they've changed it in the modern vernacular. They say, a sinner such as I. He saw himself as a wretch, just an absolute wreck of a man who had done everything possible selling innocent human beings into slavery. How do you live with yourself? And you only live with yourself by asking God to forgive you, by admitting you were a sinner. And he admitted it publicly. These are why these songs have such an impact. Because they teach us, they speak to us about who God is, about His grace and His faithfulness. And they draw us to Him. Tonight, we're going to be taking of the Lord's table. This is a time for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. To know Him as your Lord means that you have agreed to follow Him regardless of where He leads. He's your Lord, and your Savior means you have come to Him for salvation. You have put your trust in Him alone, asking Him to forgive you of your sins. And we are remembering a new covenant. That's what He said when He was in the upper room. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember his sacrifice of his broken body on the cross where he took his sin, our sin, on himself and he gave us his righteousness. That's the double imputation of what happened on that cross. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. And then his shed blood, his dying on the cross paid for our sins. So there is literally no debt remaining because it's been fulfilled to the uttermost. It's been wiped out. This is why God can say he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. They are no more because they have been paid for and so the bill of remembrance was torn up. It's gone. And we come to remember what he did on the cross and also his promise that one day he's coming back to eat with us again and we will one day partake of this table in heaven with the Lord. And this is a time for the church as Angie was saying, as a body to come together and to remember that as one body, we stand as a part of the Lord's body. And one day, what right now is spiritual will become physical. He will come back and he will take us to heaven and there we will celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb and we will eat with him and drink with him physically. This is what we remember. We're going to, I'm going to close in a word of prayer, then I'm going to give you about a minute. And I would encourage you that if there's anything between you and God, any sin, any uh, heartache, any um, issues between you and a loved one, take it to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for help. Make sure that you are right with God. Take this time to talk to Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can put you up in our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, that we can worship you. And Lord, we ask you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we long to glorify you the way you should be glorified. And we ask for your help. And Father, tonight, as a church, I would ask that if there's anyone here that isn't right, Lord, that you would forgive. And Lord, that you would be there to listen as they ask for your forgiveness. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.